Thank you for taking the time to tune in today, and thank you so much for having me on the podcast. My name is Linnea Glauner, and I'm the current PGY2 solid organ transplant pharmacy resident at the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. Today, I'll be discussing an article with you that was recently published in Clinical Transplantation by DeLul and colleagues. It's entitled Kidney Transplant from HCV Viremic Donors to HCV Negative Recipients and Risk for De Novo Donor-Specific Antibodies and Acute Rejection. As we all know, one of the most challenging obstacles facing solid organ transplant today is the scarcity of organs. In order to combat this, providers have to work to expand the donor pool. The use of hepatitis C virus or HCV antibody positive allografts has become commonplace in recent years to do just that. The Thinker trial evaluated the safety of transplanting HCV viremic allografts into HCV negative recipients and demonstrated that the transplantation of HCV genotype 1 infected kidneys, followed by treatment with direct acting antiviral agents, was a viable option to provide life-saving organs and cures for HCV infection. While HCV treatment has progressed rapidly with the currently available agents, the long-term outcomes in this patient population are still largely unknown. One concern with hepatitis C virus viremic allografts is the potential for cross-reactivity of viral-specific T cells with human leukocyte antigens and the risk of development of donor-specific antibodies, or DSA. DeLul and colleagues sought to learn more about the long-term outcomes of HCV-negative kidney transplant recipients from HCV viremic donors and published this study in June of 2022. They performed a retrospective cohort study of patients at their center who had received deceased donor kidney transplants between January 1st of 2018 and December 31st of 2020. The primary outcome in this study was the incidence of de novo DSA or donor-specific antibodies at one year. Secondary outcomes included the incidence of biopsy-proven acute rejection or BPAR, graft survival, patient survival, and kidney function as estimated by the CKD epi equation, all at one year post-transplant. Patients in the study were included in the HCV viremic cohort. If they receive allografts from a donor with a positive nucleic acid test at the time of donation, donors with hepatitis C positive antibodies, but negative nucleic acid tests were not considered viremic. Patients who were listed for renal transplant at this center had the option to consent to receive hepatitis C virus viremic kidneys if they had no history of HIV or HBV infection, no history of treated HCV infection, and no history of hepatocarcinoma. The patients who receive allografts from hepatitis C viremic donors were monitored for the development of HCV viremia by PCR beginning on post-operative day three. Prior authorizations for direct acting antiviral agents were initiated on the first positive PCR. Standard immunosuppression protocols at this institution included induction therapy with either rabbit antithymocyglobulin or basiliximab. Patients received basiliximab if they were older than 65 and had a maximum calculated panel reactive antibody, or CPRA, of less than 20%. Maintenance immunosuppression included tacrolimus and mycophenolate, and steroids were weaned off by postoperative day five. 
Patients who were transplanted prior to July of 2020 received preemptive prophylaxis for cytomegalovirus, which was then switched to a universal prophylaxis regimen beginning on July 1st of 2020. There were 950 kidney transplants that were performed during this study period, and they were all screened for eligibility for this study. Inclusion criteria were patients receiving their first transplant who had received induction therapy. Exclusion criteria included patients receiving multi-organ transplants, those with active hepatitis C infection prior to transplant, those who received hepatitis C virus antibody positive but nucleic acid negative allografts, and those who were discharged on maintenance immunosuppression regimens other than tacrolimus and mycophenolic acid, as well as those with surgical complications that resulted in the loss of allograft within one week of transplant. There were 511 patients who were deemed eligible for this study, and that included 71 patients who received hepatitis C virus viremic allografts, and 440 patients who received hepatitis C virus negative allografts. Patients in the HCV viremic group could be considered to be at lower risk of rejection at baseline. They were older on average with mean ages of 57 versus 53 years. They were also more likely to be white at 72% versus 57% and had a maximum CPRA of 9% versus 17%. Consequently, they were also less likely to receive thymoglobulin based on this institution's protocols with a rate of 77.5% versus 90.5%. Donors in the HCV viremic group were also younger, more likely to be white, and had a higher mean kidney donor profile index, or KDPI, of 54% versus 47%. In order to combat the potential confounding factors here, a weighted analysis was performed with weights that were derived from propensity scores used to estimate the effect of HCV NAT positive donors in patients based on a logistic regression of the factors known to affect the risk of allosensitization. When looking at the results of the primary outcome, there was no difference in the incidence of de novo DSA formation between groups in the unweighted analysis. Although when looking at the weighted analysis, the hepatitis C virus viremic group had a significantly higher incidence of de novo DSA at 19% versus 9% with a p-value of 0.02. Receiving a hepatitis C virus negative kidney was associated with a decreased risk of development of de novo DSA with a hazard ratio of 0.46 in the weighted analysis. For looking at the secondary outcomes, first we'll look at rejection results. There were five patients in the hepatitis C virus NAT positive group and 11 patients in the hepatitis C virus negative group that experienced biopsy-proven acute rejection. This result was not statistically significant with a p-value of 0.06. Under the weighted analysis, the incidence of BPAR was 13% versus 2%, with an absolute difference of 0.43, although the numbers in this group were too low to perform any type of statistical analysis. When looking at survival, there were 12 deaths and 17 graft losses across the study. All of these occurred in the HCV negative group, and there was no difference seen in the weighted analysis here. For renal function outcomes, Patients in the HCV positive group had a significantly higher glomerular filtration rate at three months post-transplant 
with 61 mils per minute per 1.73 meters squared versus 53 mils per minute per 1.73 meters squared, with a p-value of 0 0.002. At six months and one year, though, this difference was no longer statistically significant. For safety outcomes, Hepatitis C viremia was first detected in the NAP-positive patients on average on post-operative day three, which was also the first time that the PCRs were checked for this. After prior authorizations were approved, direct-acting antiviral therapy was initiated on average on post-operative day 28. 97.2% of patients who were treated with the direct-acting antiviral therapy achieved a sustained viral response at week 12, although two patients did experience hepatitis C virus reactivation. The authors of this study concluded that in a propensity score-based weighted analysis, receiving a kidney transplant from a hepatitis C virus NAT positive donor was associated with increased risk for development of de novo DSA and a trend towards higher biopsy-proven acute rejection at one year. This study did have several weaknesses, including the differences between the cohort's risk factors for delayed graft function and acute rejection, which were largely due to the quality of the hepatitis C virus positive allografts, whose donors were on average younger with a statistically significantly higher KDPI. This was accounted for by the weighted analysis, although as always, there may be some confounding factors that still remain. The number of patients in the HCV positive group were also relatively small, and the study was underpowered to detect a significant difference in rejection between the groups. In conclusion, I believe that this study suggests that patients receiving hepatitis C virus viremic allografts may be at higher risk of development of donor-specific antibodies, which would then put them at increased risk of acute rejection. While these patients may require a higher degree of close monitoring, I believe that the ability to use these allografts for our patients who are awaiting kidney transplant is a fantastic opportunity to help combat the organ shortage and should absolutely be considered. Switching gears now, I was also asked to provide a clinical pearl from my experience thus far in my PGY2 year. I'd like to speak to you about the administration of concomitant rabbit antithymocyglobulin and therapeutic plasma exchange in treatment of mixed acute rejection. While I was on my transplant nephrology rotation, I had the opportunity to care for a patient who had presented to the emergency department with acute kidney injury and a profound uremia after a period of several months of poor medication adherence. The patient required urgent dialysis and a biopsy was performed that revealed severe mixed acute rejection. Due to the extent of both T-cell and antibody-mediated damage, the decision was made to start the patient on both therapeutic plasmapheresis and T-cell depleting therapy immediately to try and, and salvage any remaining graft function. As given that antibodies are removed from circulation by plasmapheresis, I was tasked to design a therapy plan that included five sessions of plasmapheresis and a sufficient thymoglobulin to provide a total effective dose of at least three milligrams per kilogram. I looked at a study by Dr. West Thilke and colleagues that was published in Transplantation Proceedings in 2021, which compared the plasma concentrations of antithymocyglobulin before and after plasmapheresis as part of their desensitization protocols for ABO-incompatible transplant. They measured plasma concentrations of antithymocyglobulin in five patients on postoperative days 1, 5, and 9 at four distinct times. 
This was immediately prior to plasma exchange. At the conclusion of plasma exchange, 30 minutes later to allow for distribution, which was immediately prior to the next dose of antithymocyclobulin. And finally, 30 minutes after the completion of the antithymocyclobulin infusion. Their analysis found that there was an average decrease of 59.8% in the antithymocyclobulin levels after each plasma exchange. Well, their results found that patients undergoing treatment with both plasma exchange and antithymocyclobulin did not exhibit the same dose accumulation as patients with, treated with antithymocyclobulin alone. We felt that a dosing strategy using the relative drug removal found in this paper gave our patient the best possible chance at renal recovery. Our plan was to administer a total of six doses of thymoglobulin, totaling 9.6 mg per kg on days 1, 3, 5, 6, 7, and 8, with plasma-free secessions on days 2, 3, 4, 6, and 8, for a total effective dose of 3.2 mg per kilogram of antithymocyclobulin. Although our patient ultimately returned to dialysis, I found this practice to be incredibly valuable in furthering my understanding of pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic effects of plasmapheresis on other medications in the treatment of antibody-mediated rejection. If there are any questions about anything that I have discussed today, I would be more than happy to talk about them with you over email or by phone, and feel free to contact me. And thank you again for allowing me to be on the podcast today. Thank you.